Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening right now. This is a series of small vibrations. Thank you for listening. It's good to be with you, as always. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California, where I continue to sit in a chair and uh, talk into a microphone. Claire Vay Watkins is my guest today. Maybe you've heard of her. Uh, maybe you've seen her name on your computer screen. She's been in the news a little bit uh, lately. Her debut story collection, uh, Battleborn, is out there now in paperback from Riverhead. And uh, I can't recall a book by a debut author in recent memory that has gotten a better launch. Uh, 
uh, this book is being, you know, it's being celebrated and, uh, the critical acclaim has been rapturous. The book won, uh, the story prize and, uh, Claire received the young lions award for fiction from the New York public library. And, uh, you know, just last week she won the Dylan Thomas prize over in the UK. So it's an auspicious beginning by a very talented young writer. And I will be talking with her in just a moment. Uh, first, however, uh, I wanted to contemplate titles. I was thinking about titles the other day, the importance of them, the importance of naming things, naming, uh, works of art, books, films, what have you. How important is it? How much does it matter? How much does it affect a person's, uh, you know, enjoyment or lack thereof of the art itself? Does it alter the perception like uh, as a whole? And what got me thinking about this was uh, the movie Dying Young. <laughs> Do you guys remember this film with uh, Julia Roberts and Campbell Scott from probably 20 years ago? Uh, it's a horribly depressing cancer movie. And I don't mean to be disrespectful. Because I do think we need, uh, you know, we need to tell stories about difficult subject matter and, uh, we need to, uh, do a much better job uh, as human beings of confronting our, you know, death and suffering. I believe that, but strictly at the level of, uh, titling dying young, I question the judgment here. I think that's my point. And, you know, how did this come up? What was I doing? I'm most likely sitting here looking at my computer screen. Somehow I'm confronted with uh, the movie Dying Young. I see that title. I begin to ponder it. My wheels start to turn. And uh, I found myself in disbelief that the, that the movie ever got made in the first place. I don't think, I really don't think that could happen today. You could get a movie made called Dying Young. <laughs> At least not with a major studio. Uh, and you know what? More specifically, it's not that the movie got made. It surprises me that it was released into the world, into uh, movie theaters, with the title Dying Young in neon lights. And I mean, you know, like maybe in in literature you could get away with that kind of title. I feel like there's more latitude for that sort of thing in publishing. Uh, if you are an edgy chronicler of disaffected urban youth or something like that, fine. But, uh, you know, up there in lights on a, on a cinematic, uh, on like a cinema marquee <laughs> dying young in all caps. Hey honey, it's Friday night. What do you want to go do? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we can go see dying young tonight. seems absurd to me like you might as well just call the film malignant tumor <laughs> just get it over with malignant tumor starring julia roberts and campbell scott you know because i i cannot think like since that movie was uh was made i can't think of a film with a more nakedly depressing title that that received like theatrical distribution. 
I, you know, it's very possible that I'm forgetting something, but dying young, like what movie or, you know, or book, but especially films because it's a more commercial art and, or whatever, you know, it's harder to get, I think, really depressing movies made than it is to write really depressing books, but like the sorrow and the pity, but that, you know, that precedes dying young. That's pretty bad. (laughs) And you know what? Like even with uh, Holocaust films, which are like the ultimate in depression, in depressing art. You know, even a movie like Schindler's List, like you don't you don't know to be depressed unless you actually know what Schindler's List is. They ease you into it. <laughs> it's not like they called that film like brutal Nazi death camp. They didn't do that. Like when you go to see Dying Young, like these these people made a decision uh, to to pull no punches. They're just basically telling you, yeah, the movie's called Dying Young. We're gonna ruin your day. <laughs> You're gonna walk out shattered, and we, you know, you might not be able to sleep tonight. There's a part of me that respects that. It's honest. So maybe I'm missing something. It's possible that I don't know. Uh, if you can think of a of, of you know a title that is more uh, nakedly depressing than Dying Young, uh, please do email me or leave me a voicemail. I think it would be fun to compile a list of the most depressing titles in history. What do you guys think? Am I onto something? My guest today, once again, is Claire V. Watkins. Her debut story collection, Battleborn is out there in paperback. It is causing a stir. Uh, it is making waves. It is uh, causing me to mix metaphors. I'm really pleased to have her here on the program, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her. So without any further ado, here she is. This is Claire Vey Watkins, and her debut collection, once again, is called Battleborn. I am in New York City in uh, my agent's office. I, I think it's in Chelsea, but I, I don't really know New York well enough to say that with confidence. I just came in for the day and I found a landline here. Okay. I appreciate that. And uh, <laughs> who is your agent? Your agent is Nicole. Is it Nicole Aragi? Am I pronouncing that right? Aragi. Aragi. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's like a really, I feel like she's a really good sought after agent. I feel like, and, and I, I say this based on like this really, um, I haven't done deep research. I just feel like I know this based on the internet, which is some sort of like surface level understanding of things where I see her name pop up a lot. Kind of like I see Chris Paris Lamb's name pop up a lot in these. Yeah, right. You know, but she's a really good agent. You landed in a good spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Which was uh, just total. Um, well, it was not something I did with my expertise or savvy at all. It just um, kind of I just. Mr. Magood my way into it, which is how I basically roll with, with everything. <laughs> okay. Uh, so describe it because I think people listening might be out sure, there. I know. Who, yeah. That's who, such a, you're like, yeah, right. Shut up. Right. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Um, so Nicole and I got hooked up through, um, years ago I was at the AWP conference. You know what that is, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, 
Um, I was at AWP in Chicago, and I was in graduate school, and my mentor from when I was an undergrad was at AWP, too. His name is Christopher Koch. He teaches at the University of Nevada in Reno, where I went to school. And he was in, t- in Chicago, and he'd been on, you know, granted as those best young American lists every 10 years. So Chris had been on that list, and Granta had a booth at AWP, and he said, oh, Granta has a new editor, and he's an American. We should go uh, introduce ourselves, or I'm going to go introduce myself. And I said, okay, cool, I'm going to go get a hot dog. And um, <laughs> then I went and got the hot dog, and uh, Chris met John Freeman, who was the, who, then he was called the American editor, but he went on to be the, the full-blown editor. And um, he, Chris, Granta was doing a, a, a themed issue about fathers and Chris said oh I have a student and she has written something cool about her dad which wasn't well it was kind of semi-true I had written something but I'd also published it so I couldn't have sent it to Grant at all you know but anyway so while I was getting the hot dog Chris kind of talked me up to John and then Chris texted me and was like come over here and I was like I haven't gotten the hot dog yet you know he's like forget about the hot dog you know come (laughs) back over and so he introduced me to John and John really, I think, just out of being polite, gave me his card. And he said, Chris said, you wrote something good about your dad. You should send it to me. And um, so I went back then to the hostel. I was staying with a bunch of my my girlfriends from graduate school. And I was like, I told John, yeah, I I did write something about my dad. Absolutely. And then, which was a lie. And then I just went back to my hostel and wrote a wrote a piece that night and then sent it to him the next day. And then I didn't hear back from him for a long time. And it turned out it was because he really liked it, and he sent it on to a bunch of other people, including um, Nicole. And then Nicole liked it, but I didn't know. Nobody told me that they liked it. I was just like sitting, thinking, like, well, that went into the void, you know. And then, um... oh no, it's gone. What's gone? Hello. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Is that agent? We've got an. Another line, yeah, that's okay. the, the agency going on. Sure, sure, sure. So right. I feel like the entire, I mean, it's like, it's all about this hot dog in my mind. Like you, had you <laughs> so, Yeah, had so you, many really important things in my life have happened because of hot dogs <laughs> or, you know, the search of a hot dog, a perfect hot dog. Yeah. Okay, so Nicole likes the essay that you wrote for Grant, mm-hmm. and it, it was an essay, right? It was non Yeah, it, yeah, a short essay about my dad. And then I also, she said, yeah, what else do you have? So I sent her maybe like two stories that I've finished and another essay about my mom and um, having like anxiety attacks and stuff. And, um, she liked those. And then she said, what are you, you know, I like this stuff, but what are you doing with it? You know, you've got some essays here, you've got some stories. And I said, Oh, I'm writing a short story collection, kind of not knowing that you weren't supposed to say that word to an agent, you know, but <laughs> right. I mean, because Nicole's Nicole, she said, Oh, good. I love stories, you know? And, and I was like, okay, cool. And only, Later on, did I realize how you know freakishly rare this whole the whole thing was, or well, maybe not? I don't know. That's the thing. It's like I don't. Sometimes I think maybe publishing isn't as bad as as we we make it out to be. But no. You know? But come on. Like the, I, I would. But I would say that what has happened with Battleborn, you know, first of all, getting a story collection in print is a, is a feat. Uh, second of all, the reception that you that the book has gotten has been tremendous. Um, like right, I mean, I, like at least from my eye, it looks like this is as good of a um, experience as one could hope to have. 
Yeah, I think so too, but I don't. I don't really know because it's the only one I've ever had. You know. <laughs> so uh, listen, I can tell you. I'm, I've, yeah. talked, <laughs> I've talked to a lot of writers. You're doing right. great. You just like you just won the Dylan Thomas Prize just this last week, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's nice. I mean, that sort mm-hmm. of that sort of thing doesn't just happen. The Young Lions Fiction Award, the Story Prize. Um, this is positive for you. I feel like you should be like, are you uh, like, I'm imagining you like walking with a, a strut or some sort of like, I mean, do you feel confident? Do you feel more confident than you were before? Do you feel the same? Do you feel different having had, you know, people sort of validate, um, uh-huh. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you, yeah. when, when, when so many people are telling you like, this is good, you're talented. We love this. This is special. Do you do you get those messages? Do you feel that way about the book, or it, are you untouched by that? Well, I'm not. I'm not untouched, but I don't. I think probably when when Battleborn got published, like right before it got, well, I don't know when. Right before it got published, I actually considered. Um, I didn't think it was a very good book at all. And I asked some I asked some of my writer friends advice for how one would return in advance. Like I was like I decided that I don't want it to be out there because it's not very good. And how <laughs> how could I go about returning my advance and and retract like reneging on my contract? And then my colleague Robert Rosenberg at where I was teaching at Bucknell was like, okay, why don't you have a seat, Claire? It sounds like you're going through some stuff. Um, <laughs> and did you know that if you if you manage to do that crazy, stupid thing, you'd also lose your job here. You know, you can't be a professor without, and I was like, oh yeah, so I have to go through with it. So I went through, I went through with it and, and published it. And, um, and then I basically, I hated it. I really hated it. And it was kind of, I wish that, that it was better. And it, and now that it's had, a good um, reception and a, a little like award. I, I or if I read a good review, I think, oh, okay, you know, maybe it's not so bad. So it's basically like worked me back up to neutral with it. And now I, I am, a, I'm kind of like, I have affection towards Battleborn again, and I don't, I don't hate it. It's not the book I would write today, but um, I, I really appreciate it, and I'm, I'm thankful for it as kind of a record of this time in my life when I was, you know, age twenty. 22 to 25 writing and this is what I was thinking about it's like a tattoo I I happen to have a a tattoo that's not a very good tattoo you know a regrettable tattoo what is it what is it oh it's a flower okay Um, hey listen I've seen right I've seen worse one of my buddies one of my uh my wife's friend's husband's uh, like got wasted and went into a tattoo parlor uh, and was just like put whatever you want on my leg like he actually and the guy tattooed Literally a pile of feces with fly, <laughs> with flies around it on his calf. Oh my god! <laughs> so feel what? yeah, feel good about yourself. <laughs> okay, well yeah, I do. Um, but at least it's on his calf, you know. Mine is a, is a bona fide tramp stamp. So, but I feel like that's what I was that's what I was up to at eighteen, and now I remember that, you right, know. Right. And that's kind of how I am with with, with Battleborn. It's like that's that's what I was up to then. Also. It got me my jobs and made me. I, I met a lot of really cool people on book tours and festivals and stuff. So I I like it, but I'm not like I don't have like not like swaggering through the streets or anything. Well, about it. I'm telling you, um, I have a good sense of these things. Like this book, uh, the the affection people have for it um, is unusual, and mm-hmm. even for books that are well reviewed and do well, you know, like I feel. 
I don't know. I have a sense about it. And I think that uh, when you or I want to ask uh, about, you know, your experience with it, because I find it interesting that you went into it thinking, eh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it seems hilarious in, in retrospect. But at what point in the publication process, once you sort of like cleared that initial hurdle where you were thinking about returning your advance, at what point in that in the process did you start to get a sense that um, other people, readers and critics out there as the book made its way into the world might have a contradictory response to the one that you yourself were having? You know, like at what point were you like, wait a minute, people might like this? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know if, I guess I, I don't want to sound like overwhelmingly cynical, but I can kind of talk myself out of a lot of stuff. Like for one thing, a lot, um, I mean, there are many, many people who are working and like reviewing books and, and doing a really diligent, honest job of it. But there are also a lot of book reviews are just like your press release kind of regurgitated back, you know? Right. And so it may be good or positive or it's it's um, a good sign that it's in this magazine or whatever. But I, I don't think of it as like a genuine, it, oh, this means something. I just thought like, I mean... I have like really hardworking people, agents and editors and publicists and everybody, everybody's really, really good at their jobs. And I don't know, I think I, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that Battleborn is a good book. That's how I, I, I when I say that out loud, I hear how like dysfunctional and pathetic no, that I think sounds. You, I think you but, sound, I think you sound well, like remarkably well adjusted to be honest with you. Like that's a very Well, I just I just didn't realize how many people have to be really really good at really really hard jobs to make something succeed. And so to say, "Oh yeah, it's just a good book." kind of ignores all the work they do, you know? So I don't I don't like that approach myself. And but then again, I read like a Antonia Nelson wrote the New York Times review and right. that was such a good piece of criticism, you know, it kind of like made me think of the book in a different way and um I liked that. I thought and it wasn't really like um oh good she liked it. It was just sort of, I she had this metaphor of the core sample, you know, that the first story kind of worked as like a core sample for the rest of the book and I was like damn it, that is exactly what it is. And I, I didn't even know that myself. And that's that's so cool. Yeah, know? when somebody gives you like a really good read. And Antonia Nelson, um, I think, is like the perfect person in a way to review. I don't know, like kind of like regionally. Or I feel like, and again, I, I base this only on some sort of like gestalt sense of her and her work it, is uh, kind of somebody who would be like the perfect audience for Battleborn. So yeah. maybe that's, I mean, and it seems like that was the case. But um you know the the issue of regionality you know and the issue of place you know it's obviously um central to the book and uh, i think you know nevada i live in los angeles and mm -hmm. have and i've lived in the west for my adult life you know i starting in colorado and then kind of working my way this way mm -hmm. um and i i feel like nevada is um a very interesting place, you know, and, myster yeah. and mysterious. So uh, it's, you know, and you grew up there and I feel like the, you know, and this is uh, something that you've written about. You mentioned the Granta essay earlier, but like when I read about your life and upbringing, um, there's something kind of mythic about it to me. Uh, do you, do you feel that? I mean, I, I guess like for listeners, we should get some sense of, uh, you know, where you're from, uh, your folks, how you were raised, because, um, 
I feel like that is very connected to I mean, the book. Yeah, 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 definitely. Wait, but first, before I do that, can, where, in, where in L.A. do you live? Like Hollywood, West Hollywood. Oh, okay. I lived in Mar Vista for a little bit. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah. Yeah, in West, West L.A. See, you have to do that kind of like suss out who you're who you're dealing with. You know, like in the in the beginning of the talk, you were sort of wanting to know where I am. One of my teachers said when I was very young, "We are who we are because of where we are." You know, and I think it it really matters. Basically, that's kind of the whole thing about, and that's how I wrote the stories in Battleborn was thinking about the setting first. Um, okay, but let me let me tell you about what was the question? It's about my background, right? So I was my Mom grew up in Vegas, and my dad grew up in L.A., and they kind of met in the desert in Death Valley. My mom went out there just because she she liked exploring and she liked the desert. My dad went out there because um, he was involved with Charles Manson, and Manson was looking for a place to camp out. Uh, he, My dad was uh, sort of so-called Charles Manson's right-hand man or whatever, and um so Manson sent him to look for a place in the desert to camp out. And during, you know, while Helter Skelter would go down, they would wait out the race war in Death Valley. So my dad went there and um, eventually sort of broke away from Manson and but stayed in, in Death Valley and um, met my mom there. And I was born in Bishop, which is kind of like just the closest hospital. And um, then, my, then my dad um, died when I was six, uh, he had cancer, and my mom remarried a construction worker who worked in Vegas. So we moved across the state line into Nevada, into this town called Pahrump, Nevada, which is kind of this like libertarian stronghold. Sure, um, I know Pahrump. You do? Well, I mean, why? Yeah. Why in the world? Uh, when I was in college, some friends of mine went there for spring break because they had like no plans and like they couldn't get, I don't know, I don't know what they were doing. What? They yeah. They just wanted to be somewhere sunny and then like sit by a pool and they found one in Pahrump. And then, uh, you know, and then I, I want to say I drove through on my way to Burning Man like years and years ago oh, because yeah. the only place we could rent a camper was in Vegas. And the guy at the rental place, this is how stupid we were. The guy at the rental place was like, yeah, it's four hours to Reno. And then it was like <laughs> this, this like, you know, hellish, like 10 hour drive. Like, what? Why would he, why did he say that? Just to get you guys to... Uh, why would he lie? About, I think I think just yeah. to just to rent the the camper, but oh, I see. We went. Yeah. I traveled, you know, south to north, the like you know wastelands of Nevada, the desert, mm-hmm. like you know, the, a part of Nevada yeah. that I don't think a lot of people see. Right. Yeah. And uh, it was fascinating, you know, and it was especially hellish on the way back when we were like extremely burnt out and tired and hung over from like four days, like raving in the desert. <laughs> so. Yes. Right. And you all hate each other and you never want to see yeah. each other ever and, again. And you're like, this camper is disgusting. Like, yeah. you know, I just want to go home and like yeah. shower, you know? So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, I mean, cause I grew up in Southern Nevada and then I went to college in Reno. So I used to drive that, um, several times a year, you know, and that drive is like between from Vegas to Reno on the Nevada side. You can do it for California too, but it's kind of, you know, for pussies to do the California side, but to do the Nevada one is, um, you go through like a a wormhole and all the, every, all your like moral compass gets all twisted around and you say things you regret and you're like, this is supposed (laughs) to take six hours. We've been on the road for 10 hours. What's happening? You know? And, I went through a breakup on that drive one time and then oh, we wow. like got back together halfway and then broke up again. And it was like, a, 
yeah, that that drive can like rip you apart. Do you know? Like, do you remember? There was a, like a garbage dump. It was some sort of like, you know, it was like a landfill, but it was like a desert landfill in the middle of nowhere. And there was a sign on that highway near a town because I know there. Were, I remember there was a McDonald's, and it was like turn off here, and you can dump your garbage. Oh but yeah, I, I remember. I remember we went because uh, we had a bunch of garbage in the camper, and it was like we got to get rid of this. And then we went down to this landfill, which was like a ways off the highway, and it's like the ultimate middle of nowhere like you're on another planet and then there's just mm-hmm. garbage you know it was very surreal yeah yeah we had one of those in Pahrump too the uh, because there isn't um like a trash service at least there wasn't then i don't think there still is but yeah because you don't have like garbage men in those towns you know you just fill up your truck with your garbage and once a month you go to the dump and you know what else at and at the Pahrump dump at least there's also like an a pet dump like an open pit for animals oh god that and so uh my mom would all sort of like threaten to take us there like on their way to the dump she'd be like behave i'll take you to the <laughs> see the pit full of dead dogs <laughs> you know in the desert oh god yeah right that's yeah. so bleak I, but i do have to say mm-hmm. i like the phonetics of perump dump is that what you actually call uh-huh. it uh yeah well a lot of people in Vegas call they say of Pahrump they say over the hump to Pahrump the dump. Um <laughs> uh, but and then okay so what is the relationship to uh Vegas with Pahrump like was it kind of like that's the big town over there and we're this weird little town over here and we have kind of like a was there like an inferiority thing going on or any kind of uh Yeah yeah, def- definitely kind of an inferiority thing. And there's a sense that um, Vegas, I mean, like Vegas gets all the attention for the whole state. And um, there's a mountain range in between Vegas and Reno. I mean, sorry, uh, Vegas and Pahrump. So, you know, like this very, um, like none of the none of the landscape in, in Nevada is very subtle. So there's a big mountain range and you can look from Pahrump over at night and see all the lights going on the other side of the the mountains and you just kind of I don't know I didn't really want to go over there but I knew I was supposed to want to go over there as as a kid you know and then as a teenager you you always we always drove over there and tried to get into trouble and tried to do the things that people did on the commercials and stuff you know just like, but it was all what do you mean like go to the strip and like do yeah Okay, so that's what you did as yeah, a teenager. Yeah, but if you go to the strip when you're a teenager, all you can really do is walk. You can't really go in anywhere, and it's only a matter of time before they ask you to leave, you know. Or you could go look at, like, the sad tigers in the MGM <laughs> and, or the lions and just be like, wow, you live in a cube in a casino. That's depressing. Or you can go see the Bellagio fountain things. And sure. so we would just, like, walk up and down the strip. Which, which, by the way, is like a lot bigger, and it's like that's a that's a uh, that's a big walk. I've yeah. done I've done that. Uh-huh. You think you think like, oh, I'm just going to go out onto the strip and walk from one casino to the next, but like, that's a haul, man. You got to get mm-hmm. in a taxi. It's not. I know. Yeah, yeah. So I still think even when we, my husband and I, got off the train today, we walked over to my agent's house. I still had this feeling of like these blocks are so small, you know. Um, because for me, a block, it, it's it's a weird thing to grow up near Las Vegas because you have the, it's, you're so warped. Like um, they had this amazing water park there called Wet and Wild, but it's, you know it's like a Vegas water park, so it's huge and and really gaudy and and really fun. But also full of booze and everyone's very trashy there. <laughs> and now when I go to if I I mean even when I was like a little bit older, I would visit. 
I went to Sacramento one time with my mom for work, and she dropped me off at a water park, and I was like, this isn't really a very happening water park, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, uh, not um, like movie theaters. I thought an IMAX was just, was just a regular movie theater, and not like... Oh, movie theaters are kind of lame in the rest of the world. One of the worst. And nothing is open either. That's a, another hard thing about growing up in Nevada. Is when you move, when I went to Ohio for grad school, I had to realize that I had to like live by man's laws about what would be open and closed. Because in Nevada, everything's 24 hours, you know? Yeah. And it, I found it so oppressive. Like, what is this, a state with your last call? I'm an adult. I can drink till 6 a.m. if I want to. I've always, I've always found that silly. I mean, come on, you know? Like, yeah. Why do we have to have bedtime, you know? Exactly. It's like, all right, time to drive home drunk now, yeah. everybody. Yeah. Why can't, yeah. Why Especially can't... in L.A., I thought it was really scary because it's so big. You know, you definitely drove where, I mean, oh my not god you, everyone out there on the road i would say on a, on a exactly. weekend like 60 percent of the cars people are probably legally drunk yes yeah yeah um wow yeah so i, I guess that i didn't consider that but i mean i guess when you grow up in nevada it's like even if you're in perump you're not in las vegas but even in perump everything's just open all the time mm-hmm. and it's sort yeah. of and it's sort of really and like this is the thing too is that when i was 18 19 20 21 you know those kinds of years um Las Vegas was so much fun. I used to think it was so fun. And uh-huh. uh, as I get older, I see the more depressing side of it. And I have, you know, I've lost interest in gambling. I used to like to gamble. And now I'm like, this just sucks. I'm losing. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I yeah. guess it's fun if you win. But like you see people in there that you know are just like, you know, betting away their paycheck. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, and especially if it's like five in the morning, um, mm-hmm. you know, you see that and it's like, oof, there's a lot of uh, darkness. Right. Right. Yeah. So you see what I mean? It's like not subtle and it's kind of, yeah, if you see someone sitting on a slot machine, kind of like dead eyes, drunk at 7 a.m., you're like, well, there's a story. Probably not as like super happy one. Yeah. So it's it's funny because people often will talk about the stories of Battleborn being really bleak or how it made them like afraid of Nevada. And I'm like, all right, I really lightened it up a lot, actually. <laughs> You're like, this, <laughs> you know? is, this is the sanitized version, people. Like, yeah, there's actually a lot of a lot of stuff that I, I think uh, I can't really write about that. That makes me too sad, like the slot, the, a slot junkie. That makes me just too sad that I, I can't be um, like artful. Right, know? right. Like there's no, you, you have to, really there's got to be pity. like, there's got to be like one pinhole of light somewhere. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. It's just not, it's, um, too suffocating. Sure. So, um, I want to go back just cause I know my listeners are probably thinking like, wait a minute, what about the Charles Manson thing? Um, yeah, and I know, thing. I yeah. know you've talked <laughs> about this. I don't mean to, um, bore you with like a conversation you've probably had, uh, 6 million times, but it is, um, very interesting. And I also think it has to factor into your sense of identity and your sense of, uh, I don't know, artistry. It's got to find its way in there. And, and also the fact that, um, you know, you lost your father at a young age, which, Mm -hmm. um, is very difficult, I'm sure. And, um, I, I feel like, and I know this is the case with me, um, you know, loss often figures into the life of a writer at a young, younger age or just, or really at any age. But, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had this conversation on this show repeatedly with writers and you often hear of some sort of, um, loss or a big traumatic event in childhood that was in some way at least formative when it comes to uh, the impulse to write or the, the level of introspection that it takes to write, like, you know, the kind of that turn mm-hmm. inward. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. you couple that loss with the fact that he had such an interesting biography, at least in a certain mm-hmm. portion of his early adulthood. Like, how did how did you make sense of that? I mean, you he, you you were six years old when he passed away, so you know, like over the years, you've probably learned more about who he was and what he went through with Charles Manson, and like, how, how do you compute that? Yeah, I think it was um, in a. In a way, it was sort of a, an interesting layer to 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 the experience of losing a parent when you're very young, you know. Um, because I always I felt very curious, and I wondered what kind of a person I would be if I had known him, or whether we would get along, or whether he would like the the whether he would approve of what I was doing, or or whatever, you know. But but then, but most people who you know, their if their parent dies, they don't have Maybe they have photo albums or something, but um, they don't have like the public record of it of of that person. Right. So I actually kind of only had the public record of it because my my mom I think was I mean really really hurting when he died, but also she was just a like ruthlessly unsentimental person. So we have very few photos or. Um, like, I don't even know very much about their, I've never seen a picture of their wedding or I think I've seen like one, one, uh, like when I was a newborn and one, one photo when my sister was a newborn and we just don't have, we're not like a record keeping kind of family. I think it's, it's, it's actually probably having to do with growing up in the, in the American West and being in Las Vegas where everything's like built up just to be destroyed. You don't really like hold on to things, you know? <laughs> do, do, okay. But do you have a problem with that? Because I'm not a hugely sentimental person and I sometimes worry, like I need to take more pictures. I need to, I need to make more mm-hmm. of these like, you know, uh, Apple photo books. Like, you know, some people are so yeah. good, so, so good at record keeping and I'm, you know, part of me is like, ah, they're just, like, how often do I look at photos? I really don't. Right. Maybe that'll yeah. change later in life. But like, I don't sit there mm-hmm. with the photo album. Like maybe once every two or three years, I'll do it. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I mean, the, I, I feel the same way and I'm not good at it at all. And I, uh, my husband is a lot more sen- sentimental, but then he grew up on the East Coast. And that's my theory about that. He has deeper roots, you know. Sure. And the build, you know, we've got brick buildings, and we've got stucco over on the West, and we'll just blow it up. We don't you're care, like it's just you know? gonna. You're like it's just gonna disintegrate. It's just exactly gonna, it's right. Just Nothing gold can stay. There's no point. <laughs> yeah, these are gonna burned up anyway. I might as well burn them up right now. Uh, yeah, but then again, I have the things I, the few, every once in a while, someone out of the blue will send me like a picture of my dad or my, one of my mom's old boyfriends got in touch with me recently. And I don't really like seek out those kind of interactions, but every once in a while, it's kind of nice. And he sent me a picture of my mom when she was about my age and I'd just been born. And I mean, it's kind of, um, now that both of my parents aren't alive, I do, wish that I had some way of thinking like, how'd you do this part? I just got married like two months ago, you know, and I'm Congrat- now congratulations. Like, Thanks. Yeah. So, but I, I wish I could, like, I wish I could talk to my parents about what was that like to be married. You know, we're the first, I feel kind of weird. What did you feel weird? You know, it would <laughs> right. be nice to have that. But in, when I was, um, about like you were talking about this sort of phase being 18, 19, 20, 
that was that my dad was 18 17 I think he was 18 and 19 during the whole Manson family thing so that part of his life is really well documented you know and he wrote a book about his experience and then he's in other people's books and there's he does a lot he's done a lot of interviews and things about it so probably the 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 most impactful experience I had about the, with the Manson family stuff was reading his book when I was about like 19 or 20 and um what's it called it's called my life with charles manson okay and um it's co-written so it's hard to tell um you know what it, how much of it is his and how much of it isn't and um just the, like hearing you know him talk about going to Dennis Wilson's house to have an orgy to like show off for Dennis Wilson or doing a bunch of drugs with or going into high schools and recruiting girls to be in the Manson family. It kind of makes made me feel like, oh, okay, I'm lost, but like I'm not this lost, <laughs> you know. Like, uh, I was gonna uh, say, like, yeah, exactly. Because like, um, do you have a sense of like what the? I mean, because I haven't, I never read Helter Skelter though. I was very fat. I went through a phase when I was in junior high where I was super fascinated with the whole Manson thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot. Maybe it was kind of during my horror film years uh-huh. where I watched like every horror film, which I think is uh, often coincides with like puberty. I've I've heard yeah. this from people, but um, you know what the fuck happened? Like I can't, like how did that when cr- super crazy culty things happen? Yeah, it's like I don't even get it. Like how because Charles Manson is like demonstrably nuts, and I know. He had charisma, and I know earlier in his life he wasn't nearly as like completely batshit as he is in recent interviews, where you're just like, "Whoa, mm-hmm. this guy's like lost his mind." Right. Um, but I mean, do, you know, do you have you like investigated it to the point where you feel like you understand what happened, or is it is it a mystery to you too? It's a mystery to me too, and it's it's also like when I go investigating with that material, um, um, like none of the like so a lot of stuff about cult or serial killers or whatever is always like why which is it's a pretty impossible question and I always find it like a little bit kind of boring when I go to that material I always kind of want to find these little secret like I'm I'm just looking for like what was my dad like you know so like he'll give the he'll give an interview and he'll be talking about cult mentality and charisma and age and the way drugs and sex were played into manipulations and I just want him to say Oh, and, and by the way, I have this little girl now, and I think she's going to be okay. Oh, anyway, yeah, about right. cult mentality, but he never says that, you know? Like, right. he never says what I need him to say. So, obviously, you can see why, like, when I choose to engage with that, I mean, you, you can kind of see why I'm a kind of storyteller I am today. Like, I can't really write a story that's like, here's the answer for you, or this is why we are the way we are. I have to write stories that are more ambivalent and ask questions and are playful or frustrating or, or whatever they are, you know, cause I don't think that I don't, I don't trust any kind of like, I mean, there's, I think there's a new Manson book out now that sort of every once in a while is like, no, I've figured it out. And it's like, right. no, you haven't. And why are you, why is that the, the only way to, to engage with it? You know, I kind of think about, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the, the actual people who were there, you know, like especially this woman who I read about who gave birth while she was there. And I think about like, there's a kid, who, I mean, out there and that's, that's his or her story. You know, this is how I was born. Yeah. 
it's Charles me. Manson. Do you do, do you have any plans to write uh, nonfiction about that part of your uh, personal history or your family history? Like, is there some part of you that wants to go in there and like do some like journalistic investigation or talk to members of the Manson family that you might not have? known about or spoken mm-hmm. with to try to, I mean, has that ever crossed your mind or are you more comfortable just working in fiction? Um, yeah, I'm not that, in, I'm not really interested in it mostly because I, um, I don't know. I guess it's a little, it's a little bit kind of like, um, asking a painter, like, are you ever going to get into sculpture? You know, they're sort of like, this is my thing. I work in this thing. You know, I think fiction is, it's the thing that gets me excited and it's the thing that I, I feel can be um, the absolute most artful and most exciting. Um, I don't know. I mean, not to say you can't do nonfiction really, really well, but I don't know if I can. And if I can't be really good at it, then I don't want to do it, you know? Well, but I, but I mean, you take a, an interesting approach. Uh, you know, there, there is some autobiography uh, mm-hmm. in your book. And, you know, uh-huh. I, I was reading an interview where you said that you're not that interested in this, like, debate about nonfiction versus fiction. Um, and like the big hubbub, you know, about mm-hmm. uh, fact, you know, fact versus, uh, storytelling or whatever. But I thought it was an instance and it's an interesting choice to make. Um, and I'm curious to know how you arrived there creatively. And if you could maybe describe, um, what you did a little bit so people can kind of get a sense of it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, the first story, um, it's called Ghost Cowboys. And um, it's kind of this, I think of it as this like kind of playful, metafictional type of um, story that it basically uses the form of an essay. You know, like, so the second story in the book uses the form of letters. And I just think of the essay or as, as not of nonfiction as being another form that a story can take. And um, so that's what I was trying to do. And I was also just trying to kind of have fun. Like I'd read a, this story by Ben Fountain called Fantasy for Eleven Fingers, which reads as though, you know, all this really happened. And then there's Kurt Vonnegut, the first line of Slaughterhouse-Five is all this really happened. And then Tim O'Brien to, you know, having how to tell a true war story and all that stuff. So I just was as a writer, like really excited, like geeking out about those types of ways to tell stories. And and I thought this would it was the first time I, I felt compelled to write um, aside from when the editor of Grant asked me to. It was the second time I felt compelled to write about um, my family background because I, I thought, like, here's a really fun, artful, exciting way to do it. Yeah, no, I was struck by that too when I was reading it. I was like, okay, she's playing here. and Exactly, it's, yeah. But it's very clever. And it's like, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not mm-hmm. an easy... It's not an easy thing to execute well and make the story all stick together. I found it impressive. You know? Thanks, yeah. And then the other thing that I think is fun about that story is it's, it's I kind of think of it as a... Um, like a key or a legend to the every to all the other nine stories, a you know, cor, a like cor, a core sample, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Thanks. Thank you, Antonia. Exactly. Yeah, right, right. Um, so everything that's happening in the whole book is kind of happening in microcosm, like um, siblings, sisterhood, motherhood, um, you know, Nevada, and and how the place affects where you are, sex, un, un, kind of um, unfulfilling 
misguided um, lovers and all that stuff is happening in, in a little uh, it's like a little collage of the rest of it. I, I was going to say I feel like Nevada might be the like per capita leader in unfulfilling misguided sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, we're professional, right? It. Well, yeah, exactly. But, it's made it made a, you can make a living at it. Exactly. Not everyone can say that. Uh, so, okay. So, uh, you know, the the storytelling impulse in you has been there since you were little. Like, have you always known you were going to be a writer? Um, did you know, like, oh, my dad wrote a book? Like, that seems like it would be a, a kind of a formative thing. Like, we're, or a, um, you know, like a, that would give you a sense like, okay, this is possible. You know, people can write books and including somebody that uh, I'm related to. Like, I feel like that would be a powerful thing for a kid to understand. Like, how, how did you come to this well i didn't i didn't know that my dad had written a book until i was um i'd already decided myself that i would be a writer and then i i I, well yeah i don't think i knew about his book until later um i i was something i just always did and it was fun for me and um i liked the control aspect of it i guess you know but originally i mean not i mean i think the first thing i ever wanted to be was the president of the united states that was my <laughs> first goal and then i at some point my mom was like well you know your dad's in the man family so you're pro- that's probably not gonna happen for you and i was like oh man okay maybe in in like a european country or, or toronto i could be like the mayor of toronto yeah no but, um, that job's gonna be open soon so <laughs> Oh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Right. Um, so and then I, I, after, well, I guess when I was about like high school and teenage age, I wanted to be a filmmaker because that was kind of the, the stuff I engaged with most was film. And um, so I moved to Los Angeles and I thought I would try to do that for a while. And then I, I, I read this book by Robert Rodriguez about like guerrilla filmmaking and how to do it yourself and not be part of the system. Right. Yeah. And, that book, when I was reading it, I was like horrified at how many people you had to work with to make a film. I didn't realize that. No, I, you know what? I got a degree in film as an undergraduate, and that, huh. was, that was essentially what I learned as a film major. I was like, oh, this is a pain in the ass. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. So luckily, I just read Robert Rodriguez and him talking about how you – how you can, you know, get around all that shit. And I was like, you, you can get that far around it, not far enough. Right. And, um, and meanwhile, writing, you know, you're like the dictator of that world. That yeah, really you're the president. Me. Exactly. You're the president. Yeah. So that this is the thing I could finally be, be the president of, I think, creating my whole world. And then, um, and then your mom was also. Um, I've heard you say in interviews she was uh, uh, like a, a great bullshitter, like a na- oh yeah, totally a yeah, nat- natural mm-hmm. storyteller. Yeah, and- yeah. She and my dad put together this museum in on the edge of Death Valley. Like if you drive from Vegas to Death Valley, you, you'd probably stop at their little museum called the Shoshone Museum there. And she, you know, like didn't. Uh, I think she barely finished high school, and um, but did all the in- interpretation and labeled all the rocks and stuff. And I think most of the time she was probably right about what this artifact was or that rock was. But if she wasn't, she just made it up. And she was always like, it doesn't really matter. It just has to feel right. You know, it has <laughs> right. to feel good. As long as you're 75% correct, it's good. You're exactly. Good. Yeah. Like, is this, is this a dinosaur bone? Probably. You know, <laughs> and that's a great story if there's a dinosaur bone around here. It's yeah, fun. you're it's right. Fun. It is. It's, it's fun for the kids, you know. Like, exactly. Let yeah. them believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and your mother is no longer with us either. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and she, and she took her own life. Is that correct? Yeah. 
2007. I'm sorry? In 2007. Okay, well, um, I'm awfully sorry, and I don't want to um, make you go over, like, really sad stuff uh, too much, but... Uh, I have some experience with that. I've lost two close friends um, to suicide, which is, uh, you know, it, it delivers a unique kind of grief, I think. It's different than other kinds of loss. Um, and I wonder if, or I, I have to believe that in writing Battleborn, um, like, were you responding to that in some, like, direct way? Or is the book just sort of, when you when you think about it, do you say, like, you know, like obviously the loss of your father um, would also factor in, but that happened when you were very young. Uh, mm-hmm. the, lo- the loss of your mother being more recent, like was it, I don't know, was there like a direct line or w- were you yeah. writing to cope, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not not really writing to cope, but it, it was just more, I mean, I started Battleborn like three months after she died, you know, uh, and that's when I started graduate school and, or maybe like two months, not like three, but anyway, um, so it was just it, it was just the absolute context for all things, you know. It's like you have this like I don't really my worldview doesn't um, really believe I don't really believe in the kind of like a, 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 like a Freitag's triangle kind of shape of life, you know, where like a big thing happens and you're forever changed. But for me, you know, my mom dying was that thing. So it's not something that I consciously said. It's just like I was a different person afterwards. And I had this whole, whole new, uh, self and life. And they all, first of all, I mean, like my dad died when I was really young. So I had this idea as I was going through my life that I, I had already dealt with death and that I had like reached my quota. Right. Like I was like, I'm good for a while, Yeah. you know? And then when she died, I I realized that you don't get a quota, but, and so, that was a big major kind of worldview shift, you know, that there's just like no, there is potentially no end to it. Right. Um, and then also, you know, all of a sudden you don't have any parents at all. Right. This is a big thing. Although in the, I have to say in the, um, since then, the last almost seven years, I realized there's also a lot of advantages to being an orphan. You know, the holidays are coming up and I'm like, <laughs> the happiest person I know around Thanksgiving and Christmas time. Everyone's like, what are you doing? I'm like, not a damn thing. I'm going to watch college football in my pajamas and like, have a good time with your family. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. No, I, cause I'm not a huge fan of the holidays. Like I have a young child. So I like for her, I like it, you know, like I will, mm-hmm. I'll put on the show, but like I've, it just exhausts me. Um, and you know, along those same lines with respect to orphanhood and, um, you know, not having your, your parents, uh, here, did you feel like, was there any sense of like liberation at the level of identity? Um, and, and the reason I ask that is that I've kind of, I've kind of imagined that I think anybody imagines like, what's it going to be like when I lose my parents and like, God, I'm going to be, it'll just be me then. And like, mm-hmm. you know, do you, did you feel like a sense of like, okay, now I can just invent myself or. I feel like you're always kind of yeah. like shaping or conceiving of your, when your parents are here, I feel like you're always kind of maybe conceiving of yourself with them in mind or something. Mm-hmm. And, and like when they're mm-hmm. not no longer here, does that change? Hmm. Um, I kind of thought it would, I, I mean, because of like the way my mom, my mom, took a long time to die. I mean, she, 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 tried like 
you know, once a month for two years or something to kill herself, it felt like at some points, you know, I mean, it was so long and so draining. So this was starting about when I was like 16 or 15 or 16, all the way until I was 22 when she died. So she was just like, I mean, she was really sick and really hurting. And what, I was had, it, was it depression or? Mm-hmm. Yes, it was like really severe depression, and then she was also, I mean, she's she'd been a recovering alcoholic, so she was in AA from the time since I was a little baby. But then she got addicted to like prescription pain kill, killers. She had yeah. Lyme disease, and so she got she became a really really intense drug addict, and also was suicidal. And um, and then she she and my stepdad divorced, which was kind of like just the the last uh, gasp. Right. Of, of it, but it took a long time, and I definitely, I mean, you can kind of imagine how how long and how much shit you'd have to go through where it becomes tedious to like call the paramedics, you know, or right. you're like, fuck, now I'm going to be late for school because like you've overdosed again. Great, oh my God, you know. So. I mean, my sisters and my sister and I would argue about like who's going to stay home this time. No, I have a test. Like I seriously have to go. Okay, fine, I'll stay home. You know, so. I had this illusion that I was ready and that it would be freeing, but or or at least that I was ready and that on some level I would be okay with it. And there were certain times when she would say things like, "I'm, you know, I'm really gonna do it," and I would say, "Okay, you know, see you on the other side or whatever." But um, then when it happened, it was it was just like shattering. You know, there's just no way to ever ever be ready for that kind of thing. You know, right. so that's another. In a way, it made me a much, much more vulnerable person. I mean, it's hard to overstate like how how profound that. I mean, a lot of people when they talk about Battleborn talk about my dad because it's a more of a public story, you know, and it has this like sexy, uh, lurid um, uh, uh, fascination. But it was really more my my mom was the the real thing. I mean, like I used to be really extroverted. I used to have these. I used to be able to, I would write really tough stories with no pinhole of light whatsoever. And now I can't do that anymore. You know, it's like, it basically like completely changed the kind of person I am. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then, and then so to say like, are you, were you writing a book after that? It's like, I was doing everything in the aftermath of that. And I happened to be writing at the time. Right. Well, it's just, you know, I'm really sorry. It's like, I have a great sympathy. Like my friend, um, died of a pill overdose, you know, uh, mm-hmm. same kind of thing, you know, and it's just like, I feel like when somebody takes their own life, um, and especially somebody close to you, it just makes, it brings up so many questions. And, um, I don't know how you could have that happen and not be fundamentally changed. And I guess like what I'm wondering, uh, is, like, did it, do you find yourself wrestling with, like, the question of, like, why live? Why go through all this? Like, because I feel like, from my own personal experience, like, uh, that that's what I did. It's like, okay, that mm. that's the natural philosophical question to ask. Like, did, did you, yeah. are you haunted yeah. by that in any way? Or do you wrestle with that? Or Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think, um, hmm. I, I think I feel obliged to to not um, indulge that kind of part of my personality. I mean, I definitely list that way naturally, you know, yeah. and I can get get pretty low um, if I let myself. But um, 
I have, I mean, now, since I don't have parents anymore, I have, like, a sis- two sisters and a niece and a husband and friends, and um, I don't ever, I don't ever, ever, ever want to make them, like, feel uh, any f- fragment of, of how, you know, my mom made us feel at, at near the end, so I feel like an obligation to them to not, I don't even uh, allow myself to go there. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like... It, it, it's a very destructive act and there's great, um, human fallout. You know, the people left behind suffer a lot. And, uh, I guess from my perspective, it's, uh, it's just wanting to answer that question with like great, uh, in a way that feels really satisfactory to me. I mean, I wrote a whole novel mm-hmm. trying to grapple with that, you know, just like, how, how do we just find an answer to this? Like, don't do this <laughs> because this, uh, mm-hmm. even if it's really tough for you to be alive, like you got to hang on for the people who love you and, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, you have a, a real like obligation to them, you know. Yeah. That that I think on that's one thing that is so mystifying about it is like, didn't you know that we had a contract? Like I loved you, and so you had you were supposed to take care of yourself, right. you know? Right. Yeah, and then when it's your parents, there's also for me at least, there's just like I always say, like there's a if you made a list of all the people who love you in the world, number one would probably be your mom, you know. And then when your mom gets crossed off the list, it's not like the next person bumps up. Like even my husband <laughs> can't love me like my mom loved me, you know? So you just don't have a number one anymore. So you're right. just like, man, you like kicked me out of the nest, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, um, I'm really sorry. And I feel like, um, you know, the writerly side of things, which is a little bit more clinical and detached from the emotional side of things. Like uh, mm-hmm. from that, from the writerly perspective, I think like, my God, like uh, you've been through so much, you've had an interesting life. Like hearing you talk about it, you know, it, it seems a lot more um, epic in a lot of ways than maybe my own uh, existence. <laughs> um, though I'm sure, you know, every existence, when you drill down into it, you can find stuff, but um you know, the other aspect of it that you touched on just a few seconds ago that I want to ask you about, because I think it also f- factors into your um, your narrative abilities, is the recovery community. You know, your mother mm-hmm. being an AA, growing up around, like around that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I have to imagine, you know, A, you're living in Nevada. B, you're in like uh, around 12-steppers. You must have heard right. some stories, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like the closest thing to a religion that we had. In fact, when I was, I remember asking my mom because it was at that point when I was a kid, and my friends were like, "I'm a Christian. What are you?" And I was like, "Oh shit, I don't know. Let me check." You know. So I said, "Mom, you know what are we?" And she's like, "You know, I guess the closest we, the closest thing we have to a church is AA." And as far as churches go, like that's a, a like storytelling culture for real. You know. I mean, the whole thing is about rock bottom you know like you tell this and you don't tell and it's not just any story it's like your biggest hardest story and there's incredible humor in in the community and there's also this sense of um nothing's off limits in fact if you if you put up these limits around your storytelling you're that that's a really dangerous place to be for your recovery and you know it stops you from being honest so that all the values that help a fiction writer like uh, being really honest, um, having this 
com- complex, unsentimental, gritty type of. I mean, it's not like all fiction writers need to have them, but you can. I think you can kind of see why I, I tell the kind of stories I do. Yeah, no, it, it really does make it make a lot more sense. And uh, I've been to like I'm you know I'm not in recovery or anything, but I went to an AA meeting. Um, for book research and just out of curiosity. And like, I walked out like devastated. Like also mm-hmm. I had also done some laughing, but I was like, Holy shit. Like people do this every day. You know? like, right. Right. I was like, yeah. Oh my God. Like the, the yeah. stories people told were incredible. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. And that's all you do. It's like, yeah, that's just what an uh, AA meeting is, is about telling stories. You sort of, it's like the fire, you know, and you're all sitting around and you're telling these stories and there's, it's really, really, hard but also like kind of that's where you get like spiritually nourished well, you know i mean my parents would be like i gotta go to a meeting like i'm not myself and what they really were saying is like i, I gotta go listen and hear stories and tell them okay so here's what i like what comes to mind when you say that is uh i recall something kurt vonnegut wrote about aa and he called it the best church in america or something like that because yeah. It's so, you know, it's the most effective. It's, you know, you're authentically moved. You feel connected to other people and their suffering. Mm-hmm. People bear their souls in front of one another. Yeah, there's no yeah. bull, there's no bullshit or... And there's no piety, right. you know? That's the other thing is like you can be so flawed and you're, you're supposed to be. Other, otherwise, you're bullshitting yourself. You're not like working your program, you know? Right. But the other thing that comes to mind, too, is just, the, you know, it's at the level of doing. It's not at the level of belief, you know. Like, yeah, right. I have this, I've yeah. had this conversation uh, both on and off this program recently, and I'm increasingly convinced that, like, you know, we have to, as people, or at least if I can only speak for myself, I guess, but it seems like it would apply to most people anyway. Like, you, you have to do something regularly to charge your battery or that part of your battery, you know, where you feel uh, for lack of a better word, like spiritually renewed or connected, like it's not going to just happen on its own. You got to do something and it's not enough to just believe something. And like, then you just like tick the box and cross it off. Like it makes sense to me that you would have some sort of thing you do. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, do you, do you feel that way now? Like, do you ever go to meetings just for old time's sake or, I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to a lot of, um, like Al-Anon, you know, Al-Anon is sure. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I went to a lot of Al-Anon when I was um, younger, and I don't, I mean, then, and then I went to a lot of therapy, which is a, sort of similar, but not the, not the, not the same. I mean, probably reading and writing is the, the thing for me, and, and talking. I mean, I think sometimes, not today, but sometimes when I do interviews and I talk about this stuff, well... I, I think I basically made a decision when I started talking about Battleborn and about my parents to people. I, I and I talked to my sister about this, and I said like either I can draw these boundaries and say like I will not talk about this. I will not say you know I'm not going to talk about mom or I'm not going to mention this. Or I can say to them I, I don't talk about that. Thanks. The next question or. I can, I basically felt like I had this opportunity to become kind of a robot about it and make these like artificial barriers in my emotional space, or I could just feel it out on a case by case. Like today, I I feel like I can talk about it today, you know, or sometimes I don't, but I don't want to, I don't know, like, I don't want to like issue a mandate of the heart and be like, this is your position. This is how you always feel about your parents. I don't want them to become, I don't know, like a policy no, because I, I totally get it because it's not easy stuff to talk about, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, but at the same time, 
it is it's so um close to who you are or close you know the, my mm-hmm. losses are very close to who i am and i think to to box that part of yourself out and say i'm not going to communicate about this like it turns it into an even bigger burden uh yeah. you know and and mm-hmm. obviously in some instances you don't want to get into it i i totally get that as mm-hmm. well but i i'm of the belief that I don't know. I'm a pretty open person. And I think that I get great relief when I hear people, uh, just like with an AA meeting, you know what I'm saying? When somebody, yeah. bear, when somebody bears mm-hmm. their soul or is open in a, in a very genuine way, it's mm-hmm. a great relief. Honesty mm-hmm. and candor is a great relief to me. So if I like to try to be that way because mm-hmm. uh, I feel like, you know, everyone's suffering and people are yeah. lonely out there and everyone's dealing with something, you know, like, mm-hmm. l- like you said, there's no quota. We all get it eventually. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's right. just, I think, yeah. it's, you know, I think it's probably healthier, um, mm-hmm. for everyone, you know, most especially you to, to do it the mm-hmm. way that you're doing it as opposed mm-hmm. to like throwing up these guardrails and saying, this is it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there, it's also, uh, I remember, I can't remember if this is really how it actually happened, but in my mind, the way I remember my mom dying, I was in college. It was like the last week or two of college, and um, my I had a roommate, and I got the phone call from my stepdad, and he told me, and I, I just sort of like sat on the floor for a while, and then um, my roommate came home, and I told her, and it must have been a few days later or a month later or something, but in my head, it happened right away. She said something. She's a writer, too. You know, we were undergrads and really, really hungry, really wanted to be writers, you know? Yeah. And, and she said, um, God, you already had so much to write about, <laughs> you know? And I could, like, hear this sense of envy in her voice. And now, now that I know her, I'm like, no, Mallory couldn't. She was not. Mallory would not do that. But there was this sense maybe just implied or something like, you know, it, it's kind of, I think there's a moment in the, in girls where she says, you know, she's so lucky her boyfriend killed herself, you well, know? Well, no, but see, this is the thing I've had that I, you know, it's a very touchy thing to talk about because it can seem so crass and gross yeah, or whatever. But right. when I read a memoir and I'm like, oh my God, this person, you know, grew up with carnies and, um, <laughs> you know, you know, it was like treated like a dog and made to wear a collar or just whatever it was. Like, you're just right. like. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, I think that there's something more than just like the grotiness. It is a little grody, but there's something more because there's a sense of like, uh, I do think that if some really tough stuff happens to you, it it can make you feel, like kind of open up and be more, more more vulnerable and more observant and more compassionate, which make, right. it can really make you a better at making art, you know? I think so. in so. a way, there's something to that when we say, gosh, you're, you're, so, you're so lucky to, to be an orphan. I do feel, another, another way I feel really lucky to be an orphan is I feel like I, I feel a lot of things all the time. And certainly some days I'm like, oh, God damn it, enough with the feelings. You right. know? Can we turn this but off? Can I get a exactly. break? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for if you want to be a, a writer, what a problem to have. Like I just have all this feeling, you know, yeah. for other people. I mean, sometimes, some days I can't even really watch like TV or go to the store because I just, I just sort of <laughs> break down. And I'm like, I, my husband's like, what's, what's wrong? You know, you're supposed to get milk. And I'm like, well, I went to the store and I felt like everyone was so sad and I had to go home because I was so sad for them or something. Yeah. He's like, oh, great. Yeah. You got the writer thing on, but we don't have any milk now. Right. <laughs> well, but I, you know, that's the best possible case scenario, I think, is that when these things happen to us in life, we lose people, we suffer, 
you know, you can kind of go one of two ways. You know, you either open up and become more compassionate or a lot of people close down. And right, I, th- I yeah. think that um, you are to be commended uh, for doing the former as opposed to the latter. And then I also think it's worth noting that um, making good art or just making art in general, trying to make something beautiful uh, in response or at least in partial response to that kind of stuff is noble, I think, you know, or at least like there's worse things you could do, right? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. There's worse ways to respond. And I think it's mm-hmm. like, it's, you know, to me, it's kind of a, you know, it's an alchemy, you know, a form of alchemy mm-hmm. where you're taking, mm-hmm. you know, maybe these not so kind of the base metals and, and trying to transmute. That's nice. Does that make sense? I like that. Absolutely. So maybe you can, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you that I think you should think of Battleborn that way. Like that is, that is your, you've alchemized some. Well, I think that I, I, I would be happy to consider that an achievement more than <laughs> like good reviews or awards. You know, I think that shit is a crapshoot, but I really had to work really fucking hard to, to write this book and to not go into my room and never come out after being hurt a lot, you know? So yeah. I'm proud of those. Yeah, so reviews, should. awards, whatever, but I'm, I, I did, I, I am, I am proud of that. Well, you, you should be. And, uh, I'm happy for you. I think it's great. And I, uh, you know, this was, this is like the natural moment to close. Um, it's, it's like, you can kind of feel it. It's like the emotional moment to kind of like sign off, but I actually have one more question for you that I want to talk to you about because I think my listeners would like hearing you discuss it. Okay. Um, and that is, that has to do with the, the actual composition of these stories. Uh, and I was reading uh, an interview you did and you were talking about this and you were talking about first drafts and having like a physical first draft that you would write and then print out so that it would be there. And then you would kind of just shelve it and not go back to it mm-hmm. and then rewrite. I mean, there's such a um, there's such a finished sense that, you know, that these stories feel so polished uh, you must have worked really hard on them. And sometimes I think it's easy for readers to read such stories and think that they came more easily than they did. So like, mm-hmm. how, how do you do it? How do you make a story? Is there a, a pattern that you can kind of point to? Well, yeah, with those stories, um, I did have a pretty specific pattern, especially because I was in graduate school, you know? So I made myself a rule in graduate school that I wouldn't submit the same story, that I would always use my deadlines, my workshop deadlines as a a hard deadline with myself, that I had to produce something new. And so that's, I mean, I would, I would um, work really, really hard to get really as close as I possibly could for those deadlines. Um, And so what that process looked like was um, I have a notebook I carry around with me and um, I, I sort of write down all different kinds of striking images or weird things or, or whatever. And then I, at a certain point, kind of, once I figure out the setting for a story, I, I could, then I'd figure out who was there and what kind of trouble they'd get into. And I'd Frankenstein all these, um, you know, like the kind of, I think of a story has like a color palette almost, you know, and like sort of, sort of this is the range of this piece. And I would read it out loud a lot. I mean, I write a really, really, really slow first draft starting from, you know, every day I'd start from word one and read it all out loud and kind of comb, comb, comb through and then start writing some more stuff. So that would take a couple months and then then I would get it workshopped 
And um, always my ego got all bruised in a workshop, so I would put it away for a while. And then um, about half the stories I wrote in grad school, I'd never felt any need to come back, return to ever again. I just let them die in the in the drawer, you know? And then the other ones, I, I was like, I wonder what's happening with that old guy who found something in the desert, you know? And then I'd go back and... Um, just basically kind of start the whole process over again and um like on a, bl- a on a blank page without referencing or would you mm-hmm. work with the existing text well i had a bunch of i had a bunch of copies you know because i'd like distributed them for workshops so i would find one that was kind of blank and put it in uh this this little cupboard i had and um, and I would say, like, because I was afraid of ruining the stories with revision, you know, because I wrote them so slowly, and, and it, it really, like, I have to, like, really pull them out. It doesn't come naturally to me at all, you know. But, um, and I was afraid of ruining it, so I would, I would put a physical copy of the manuscript in this cupboard, and I would say, I'll come back for you. <laughs> and I would close it. And same thing, like, with an editor or um, anybody ever gives me notes on a story, I'm like, this is stupid and then my husband or my boyfriend then would say yeah probably why don't you give it why don't you try the edits so that you can tell them exactly how it's stupid and i would say okay and then i put good advice good advice from exactly yeah and i would put my you know supposedly perfect version in this cupboard and i'd say i'll be back for you you know i'm just gonna go try this stupid person's idea and then um i would do the thing they told me to do and and i have never once gone back to the cupboard like all those things are still. I've never gone back because it's. It, it was uh, everybody was always right, and I. They always got better through the process. It just was kind of. That's like the. You e- know. It's like the ego cupboard. You know your ego. Oh wins. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it's. It, it's. Uh, you think I would stop doing it now that I know that I should just revise like a. No, but don't mess, don't mess system. with what works. I think you should whatever yeah. whatever system you're doing. It seems to be working. Uh, <laughs> So stick I had with it. one one story took what came like lightning, you know, really, really, really fast, and that one took three months. <laughs> so the others took basically all three years of grad school, more or less. And and do you like? Can you uh, quantify drafts? Like, I mean, are you doing twenty, thirty drafts per story, or less than that, or more than that? Like, uh, hmm, probably. Well, it's hard to say because I, it's not like I like zip it down and then start over and that's number two. Right. You know, I yeah. just go so slowly. I mean, it's almost like a different draft every day. I mean, that's how that's what my files look like in my computer is every single day is, is saved differently, which also is just my way of making up for like, did you mess it up? OK, you can go to the day before that, which I've also never done. I'm just it's just hard for me to like keep keep walking forward. So I take these baby steps and I have a lot of safety nets under underneath me Mm, well but i like i mean i really like to hear that it seems like they were written quickly or naturally or you must have just sort of like you know dictated these because that's what i want them to feel like but that's not the case at all with any of them well but two things i mean uh, two things come to mind like one is that uh hard writing usually or hopefully makes for easy reading i think like the just the slowness Mm -hmm. the care the sweat you know really uh that really, I think, shows up on the page in the end. And then I'm also struck by um, the fact that you read these things out loud, which I, I do as well. And I think, I don't know, I find that enormously helpful. Like you want it to feel, yeah. like, you want it to feel like Absolutely. someone's talking to you when you read, you know? Yeah, like, you want- yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I teach now 
And um, yeah, I was at, at Princeton yesterday and I had one-on-one conferences with my students and I have these conferences with them and they think I'm a genius, but all I do is read the thing they've given me out loud. And then they're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, here. And then they change it, you know, and I then I read another sentence and they go, oh, shit, shit that verb's horrible. And it's like, yeah, like you guys are really paying me a lot to just read these <laughs> out, out loud. This to isn't, you. Yeah, you know, it, there's something to be said. For like, how does it sound? Like, you know, does it mm-hmm. sound okay? Because I think you can miss stuff. I think you. I yeah. mean, I personally miss a lot when I don't hear it. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, me. Yeah, me too. And um, the things that I are the kind of. I don't know. I always have had a kind of a, a tactile. I was talking with Karen Russell about this a long time ago about feeling language, you know, like I like I have to say a word and, and fe- whenever I learn a new word, I always ask the person to say it for me a lot. You know, I like want to get get to roll around in it a little bit. And that's if I if I can roll around in a sentence and it feels comfortable, then it, then it will probably stay. But it takes me a very long time. Also, I hate the sound of my own voice like literally and, and figuratively as in the writer's voice, you know? So if I, it's excruciating, but when I get to the point where I, it's bearable, then I'm like, okay, that's probably good enough. <laughs> you know? Cause usually I just hate it. I hate what I'm writing so much that if I get com- comfortable, then that that's a good sign for me. That makes me feel good to hear you say that. Cause I'm the same <laughs> way. Like I, I always look at what I'm writing and I'm like, what the fuck is it? You know? Yeah, I'm very hard on yeah. myself, but maybe that's a good mm-hmm. thing. You know, you're trying to create an experience for people. So yeah, I think I think you should be because you you really have to love your book more than any or love your story or whatever more than anyone. No one's ever going to care about it as much as you do. So if you, you know, can't live with it, then it's it's really unreasonable to ask other people to. There you go. Well, I uh, I congratulate you once again. It's been super fun talking with you. I appreciate you taking the yeah. time. Thanks, Brad. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck going forward. Thanks. You too. Okay, guys. There you go. That's Claire Vey Watkins. Her book is called Battleborn. It is available now from Riverhead and Paperback. Go get it. Read it. Yeah, you can find Claire online at ClaireVeyWatkins.com. She's on Twitter, and uh, her handle is at Claire Vey, and uh, she might be on Facebook. Is she on Facebook? Somebody tell me if she's on Facebook. She's on Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. By the way, I don't have anybody in here with me. That was total bullshit. (laughs) And hey, don't forget about that app, the free Other People app. Do you have that app yet? Do I need to keep doing this? Get the app. It's free. It's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. You push a button. It's on your phone. It just sits there, and if you want to listen, you can. It automatically uploads new episodes, so you don't have to do anything. And it's also a great way to uh, access premium content in the full archives. So go get that if you haven't done so already. Make your life easier. The app itself is free. Uh, Okay, so uh, I've got to race out the door. I've got to go pick up my daughter. That's my uh, duty as a family man. And I think we're going to go see a movie. Maybe get some dinner. What should we go see? I don't know. I'm sure there's some sort of animated holiday fair floating around out there. Uh, please remember that Rudyard Kipling's oldest son was killed in World War... God, that's a depressing segue. <laughs> uh, see, I have these little factoids written down, and I didn't realize I was going to talk about my daughter. And, that, you know, I don't want to talk about war death. I've already talked about death enough in this show. 
So please remember that Gertrude Stein once said, I am because my little dog knows me. That's a sweet one. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, at the end of every episode, I do two little random literary factoids. But today, I only, you know, I only did one. That's it for now. I'm ba- I'm clearly, uh, it's, it's time for me to go. Thanks again to Claire Vay Watkins. Go get her book. Seriously, people, make the purchase. Do that right now. Go get her book. I'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening as always. I really appreciate it. And, uh...